Welcome to this episode of Trauma Talk. Today we're discussing burns, how to assess them, how to treat them, and the importance of adequate fluid resuscitation with Dr. William Waswick. Dr. Waswick is board certified by the American Board of Surgery and is a member of the American Burn Association. He currently serves as an executive member of the Trauma Committee here at Wesley Medical Center. Dr. Waswick, would you please introduce yourself? I'm Bill Waswick, or William Waswick. I'm a physician. I've uh, been here in Wichita since 1987. Came from North Dakota. I'm a farm boy. When I came down here and I finished my surgery training, I was asked if I'd work in the burn center back in 1992. That's almost 30 years ago. And uh, I've been doing burn care ever since. Also doing trauma here at Wesley and dental surgery as well. Dr. Waswick, would you please give us a brief review of the epidermis, dermis, and walk us through the different degrees of burns? The skin is divided you know, in the, in the superficial layer, the epidermis, which is the outer layer, and then the deep layer, the dermal layer. Um, and when we talk about burn care, we talk about burns being both first, second, or third degree, or, or also uh, burn talk will use superficial versus a deep burn. I think that's really what we're talking about here. And a first degree burn would be something we've all had, and that's the, the sunburn. Anyone that's honest in Kansas has been sunburned at once, one time in their life or another. And you know, we usually treat sunburn with lotion, aloe vera, something like that. But a sunburn can actually become a second-degree burn, which is where you have a burn into the superficial part of the, the dermis or into the dermis itself. The epidermis will often blister and slough, and those second-degree burns that are partial thickness burns can be really painful and uncomfortable. And uh, depending on the size of them, sometimes they'll need to be treated in a regional burn center. Of course, third-degree burns would be... Uh, full thickness all the way through the burn. The classic third-degree burn that I see here in Kansas is a, a muffler burn, and it'll be somebody that's riding a motorcycle. They'll touch their calf up against the muffler. A third-degree burn is full thickness. It kills the nerves, so it doesn't hurt. And so what those patients will do is usually not do anything. They'll just ignore it because it doesn't hurt, doesn't bother them, and they'll come and see us you know, week to 10 days later when it gets infected and starts to pus out. The good news is usually those are small enough that those will fill in and heal on their own. If they were a larger area, they would need skin grafting. So Dr. Waswick, how do you perform an initial assessment on a burn patient? So when a patient comes in with a burn, it's very easy to get distracted by the, especially if it's a, you know, 60% of their body burned. Uh, if you're new to this, you can get so drawn into the burns itself that you forget to take care of the patient. And so you want to still maintain the old trauma adage of ABCs, you know, airway with C-spine protection, breathing circulation, uh, and go on through that whole thing. You want to make sure you don't miss any associated injuries. My classic story, and uh, it's just a little story, but when I first started practice, I had a patient that came in who had a fairly big second-degree burn, scald burn, to about 40% of his body. And I very diligently calculated out what his fluid requirements should be, and this was Back then, we called it the Parkland formula, and I ran the fluids just like they were supposed to be and just wasn't responding. He wasn't making adequate urine. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. His blood pressure was low. He's hypotensive, and I couldn't figure it out until one of the EMTs walked in to check on him. They asked me how he was doing, and I said, well, he's not really doing that great. He's pretty hypotensive. And they said, oh, I'm not surprised. That was a hell of a fall. And I said, what do you mean, a fall? He apparently had been working on a ladder about 35 feet up in the air, got scalded from some piping and then fell. And once I realized that and did a little further assessment, I figured out he had a ruptured spleen. And once that was managed, his blood pressure and his fluid resuscitation went fine. So again, um, that was 28 years ago. 
just making sure we don't miss those associated injuries. Are there any commonly missed associated injuries with burns? Not any particular one that's associated with burns, other than, you know, burns in general occur in trauma patients. You know, classic example would be that patient that's in a car accident and the car starts on fire or airplane crash, those types of things. And then even just the plain old ordinary road rash from that motorcycle rider that slides down the street. That road rash, especially if it's a large enough area, could be considered and treated like a burn. What method do you use to calculate burn percentage on a patient? So again, after you've done your assessment and done your ABCs, then you'd want to assess the burn itself, and you'd want to decide if it's you know, second degree or third degree. For the f- course of fluid calculations, we don't worry about first degree or sunburn. And probably the way that we do it in the burn center that is helpful is something called the London Broder chart. That's not readily available to everybody. Uh, That's actually a little piece of paper, or sometimes there's even an app you can put on your phone that does it where you uh, map out the body and and the percentage of the burns. And that's the most accurate way that we have today. But most people use the rule of nines, where the upper extremity is 9% of the total body surface area, the front of the leg is 9%, the head is 9%, the trunk uh, is 18%. And using that, you could kind of get a good idea of what the total body surface area burn is. The other one that I use a lot, in, particularly on kiddos that get a scald burn to their chest, you know, they're helping mom cook and they pull something out of the microwave and get a, a scald burn down the front of their chest. If I want to calculate that out, usually those are, you know, five, six, seven percent of the body. And if you look at the child's palm, the palm of their hand is one percent of their total body surface area. And I'll just use that in my mind to just kind of map out the area and get a rough idea of what the percent of the burn is, and that can be helpful. Do you see a lot of patients brought in in a state of hypothermia? Yes, both in trauma and in, in burn care, and so obviously you want to keep them warm uh, with, uh, like in the wintertime, wrap them up with blankets, whatever you need to do, warm up the room, run warm IV fluids in, things like that. Why is fluid resuscitation important to the burn patient? So yeah, when a, when a person has a major burn, you know, there's a lot of systemic things that happen to them. And, and one of those things is capillary, the capillaries themselves are unable to retain fluids, and so that fluid tends to go out into the soft tissues. And so that's where you get the edema and swelling and third spacing. And that's one of the reasons why it's so important to give these patients adequate fluid resuscitation. Uh, a lot of these the areas of the body that are burned are, are in a, what we call a zone of stasis, where they're still trying to make up their mind, basically, if they're going to convert to a full thickness burn or a partial thickness burn. And we found that by adequately resuscitating the patients with fluid, we can help prevent them from convert to converting to a full thickness burn. And so that's why it's important. Also, they'll go into renal failure if they don't uh, have adequate fluid resuscitation, uh, usually within six hours. How much fluid should a burn patient receive in the first hour? Probably the easiest way to initiate for a major burn, which I would define as you know 20% of their body surface area being burned or more, there's a pre-hospital f- formula that's used that I think is pretty helpful, and it's usually lactated ringer, although I wouldn't disagree with normal saline. And if they're less than five years of age, we run it at 125 cc's an hour. If they're between five and 15, it's 250 cc's an hour, and if they're over the age of 15, 500 cc's an hour. And that'll get you in the ballpark, 
and particularly in that first hour or two and you don't have a lot of time and, you're, and you don't want to sit down and calculate out the formula, it's a good way to do it. And in Kansas, a lot of your patients can be in the, in the regional burn center within that hour, and so you may not even need to do anything further than that. And that's what I would uh, recommend. Again, if you can, warm fluid is helpful. And the common question I'm asked is, well, what if I don't know how old they are? And the answer is you just take an educated guess if they can't tell you. How much fluid should a burn patient receive in the first 24 hours? After a patient arrives in our, in our burn center, we'll usually do a better calculation with the London Broder chart of their body surface area. Of course, electrical burns are often deeper and you can't see them. And those patients in general will require more IV fluid. But we'll always start with a, what we call a consensus formula where we actually calculate out the fluid requirements and we can go over that if you'd like. While we're running the fluids at that rate, and often on a major burn, we might be running IV fluids at a liter an hour, which is pretty tremendous. Uh, you want a Foley catheter if you do that uh, to make sure that they have a place for that urine to go and, and you monitor that urine output and that they're perfusing their end organ very well. If they're making adequate urine output of you know 30 to 50 ml an hour, then we're happy with our fluid resuscitation. If they're making more urine than that, we'll actually cut down on our fluid resuscitation because we don't want to over-resuscitate them. And if they're not making enough, we'll usually increase our IV fluid by 10% every 15 minutes and just continue to crank it up until we get adequate perfusion. And often with electrical injuries, that'll be the case. We'll have to give even 50% more volume than we calculate. Interestingly, also bad inhalation injuries will usually require about 50% more fluid volume. So the consensus formula, or it used to be called the Parkland formula, uh, is basically a calculation that we use to decide how much fluid to start with for the patient. And we usually do that once they get to the burn center, although sometimes the burn center will talk uh, to a local hospital and kind of talk them through the formula and get it started as well. But it uh, is fairly simple, but it's uh, mind-boggling sometimes in the volumes of fluids that you come up with for these patients. But it's four uh, ml per hour times the patient's weight in kilograms times the total body surface area that's burned. So, for example, if you had somebody who burned 50% of their body, you would take 50, not the decimal point, but 5-0, times their uh, weight, and we'll just say there's, like you and I, 70 kilos, times 4, and that's going to give you 14,000 liters. And you want to give that 14,000 or cc's, 14 liters, half that volume or 7 liters over 8 hours. And that would be around between eight and 900 ml an hour for IV fluid. And that'd be just your initial start. You put a Foley catheter in and monitor their urine output. And then adjust it about 10% every 15 minutes up or down depending on urine output. Do you have any recommendations on specific meds to use for pain control in burn patients? I think it's important that you treat them for their pain. Years ago, we didn't do that very well. And you'll find that you'll do better with small doses of IV medication. Uh, these patients that are burned don't tend to do well with IM medication, uh, just because of the way the fluid shifts are in the body. But I, small dose doses of IV morphine or fentanyl, um, maybe a little Versed, things that you can, can reverse if you need to, just give them as you need them. And again, it depends on the depth of the burn. Second-degree burns are very painful. You have a lot of exposed nerves. Once you get them wrapped up, though, often they'll feel better. Um, you also want to cool down the burn, but you don't want to make the patient cold, and sometimes that'll make the patient feel better as well. Have you used ketamine in your practice? I don't have any 
qualms with or, you know, with ketamine at all. We use ketamine a lot in our children for dressing changes in the burn center. When it comes to a patient who has received burn injuries to their airway, do you recommend a supraglottic airway or an ET tube? If there's any concern about an airway difficulty, you should intubate the patient and not hesitate to do that. Questionable, and maybe the patient is fairly comfortable, doesn't have a lot of strider, and you have less than an hour transportation time, then I don't think there's a need to necessarily intubate. But if there's ever any strider, carbaceous sputum, raspy breath, anything like that, then we'd rather you intubate than wish you had had. Are there any other patients who fall in that category that are less than 20%? The best way to answer that question is just to talk about their, the American Burn Association actually has a set of guidelines and recommendations for who should go to a regional burn center. And just because they make that recommendation doesn't necessarily mean that that patient has to be flown, you know, by air across the state of Kansas to the burn center because they have a minor burn to a cosmetically important area. But it does mean that maybe you need to talk to the burn facility and make plans for outpatient follow-up and treatment. But the criteria for transfer or evaluation by a burn center is basically in the uh, young and old, which they defined by the ABA, and this this hurts me, but they define the young as less than 10 and the old as anyone over 50, which I definitely qualify. So in in the young and old, any burn over 10% or road rash over 10% of the body surface area, they recommend be sent to or evaluated by a regional burn center. And then everybody else between the age of 10 and 50, more than 20%. Then any cosmetically vital burns uh, to any, you know, face, hands, those uh, genitalia, those kinds of areas, they recommend that be evaluated by a burn center. Also, uh, severe chemical burns or third-degree burns, full-thickness burns, even over 5% probably should be evaluated by a burn center. And then the other area that we don't talk about much sometimes, but we should think about it more, is both abuse of our elderly and our young. And if there's ever a situation where you suspect that, um, transfer to a burn center is a good idea because we're set up, we have the the care team and we have the case managers that are really familiar with dealing with those issues and uh, can help with a lot of that. Dr. Waswick, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed this episode. Hope you'll come back next time. If you have any questions for Dr. Waswick, you can reach me at aaron.suttton at wesleymc.com. You can also find learning objectives at our landing page at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com. And I'll catch you next even Tuesday.